Hello and thank you for tuning in to the morning edition of the D1T in 5 for Friday, January 19th. Let's jump into this morning's top stories. U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Judges Kim McLean Wardlaw and Jacqueline Hongnok Nguyen have denied the NCAA's request for an interlocutory appeal, an appeal before a final judgment in a case of House v. NCAA case before it heads to trial. Sportico's Michael McCann and Daniel Libet note, such appeals are rarely granted. Appellate courts strongly prefer to review cases only after a final judgment on the merits, and this case is not scheduled for a jury trial until 2025. The basic logic, a final judgment offers a completed matter to review, while an interlocutory appeal concerns only a preliminary or incomplete matter. The NCAA had previously warned that denial of this petition would be the death knell of the litigation. McCann and Libet also note that plaintiffs' attorneys successfully argued the NCAA failed to identify the necessary extraordinary circumstances for an interlocutory appeal and questioned the NCAA's insinuation it would struggle to pay. From their brief, more than $7 billion in annual revenue attributed to P5 public schools alone ought to be enough to cover defendants' litigation costs. NCAA VP of Women's Basketball Lynn Halsman joins Fox Sports and connects Brian Fisher from the 2024 NCAA convention to provide context and details on the new media rights deal and the decision to not break women's basketball away from the entire package. The two also talk about the potential for revenue distribution, trends in the transfer portal, maximizing opportunities at host sites for championships and more. On the media rights negotiations, Halsman says, I can assure everyone that throughout the entire process here everything was on the table. At the end of the day, the objective was really for the NCAA, and then, inherently within that, women's basketball, to make sure we achieved the best we could within the current market around reach, relevance and revenue. With the information what's been shared around having that $65 million average annual value for women's basketball, it also was specifically important for us, even with it being a package deal, that that was going to be part of the deliverable out of this is, to make sure that there was a specific assigned value for women's basketball. In some ways, that was, to mitigate what you just said about why didn't you go to market, but I can assure everyone it was very thorough and every single angle was looked at and everything at the end of the day the best deal was made for the organization for our championships and for women's basketball. Freshly minted South Dakota AD John Schemmel joins the Yotecast and says he'll be on the lookout for patterns, good, bad or indifferent, when talking with coaches, staff and student-athletes in order to determine what issues need to be addressed urgently. Big picture, Schemmel notes, we look at obviously the climate we're in with NIL, with the collectives, with Alston funding, with all these different things. We have to work within the rules that the NCAA is allowing us, otherwise, in my opinion, we're doing a disservice to our student-athletes. What does that mean as far as collectives and things for us? I don't know. Do I ever think we're going to line up and have a starting five that is each being paid $100,000? No, I don't. Do I think that we have people out there that want to be a part of that, and contribute to support NIL? Absolutely, but I think the biggest thing in all of that is to not kind of set one or two priorities and then shove that down people's throats. We need to set up a giving platform and an engagement process that really brings everybody in. Schemmel also talks about the transfer portal and points out that the adults, coaches, are leaving, though he points out there is often a buyout attached. While he doesn't suggest attaching buyouts to players transferring, Schemmel does believe there's got to be some kind of parameter in which the school that loses somebody, they're not put at a disadvantage. But, until the adults fix what the adults do, I think the student body has a strong argument for similar agency. 
North Alabama Professor James L. Watkins, North Dakota State Professor Kelsey Slater and Big West Assistant Commissioner for Student-Athlete Programming Leslie Chang examine the state of academic advising at FBS programs and find that at least 95.6% of advisors who responded to their survey indicated having a master's degree while just 10% had a doctoral degree. Additionally, over half of advisors reported that they played a college sport at the NCAA, NAIA or junior college level, with two-thirds of those playing on a Division I team at some point. The results, they point out, remain largely unchanged from a similar 2017 study conducted by Kansas State Professor Lisa Rubin. While the credentials of academic advisors across FBS, FCS and schools without football appear largely similar, Watkins, et al. point out that, the advisors at Power 5 and Group of 5 athletic departments were significantly more likely to have worked as a graduate assistant or paid intern in athletic academic support. FCS athletic departments, however, hired more former college coaches. It is important to point out that the advisors in our study only reported what type of work they did before becoming an advisor. As far as the job itself, the researchers found that P5 advisors advised less teams than their G5 peers. The same applied to advisors at G5 departments compared to FCS and non-football departments. Watkins, at all writing, potential athletic academic advisors should attend graduate school, and since the majority of advisors played a college sport, former athletes who are interested in becoming an advisor should feel encouraged that their experience could help them land a job in that career field. Thank you for tuning in to the morning edition of the D1T in 5 for Friday, January 19th. We'll see you back here this afternoon.